Good morning to you all. We thought it'd be a good idea to break up our series through the Gospel of John uh, that we're pretty much doing all this year, Hear, Believe, Obey. Um, To that end, we've been going chapter by chapter through John's Gospel, but it's school holidays now. It was Easter last week, and this week is still school holidays, and Anzac Day is coming up this week. Um, But we thought we'd use these opportunities. John Mack asked if I could do a one-off Old Testament talk to apply some variety uh, to our teaching program for the year. And we'll be doing this uh, every school holiday. Uh, I've been reading through the Old Testament book Ecclesiastes when I'm not reading John, and it's a fascinating read. I'm still getting my thoughts together on the whole thing. Uh, but today I want to walk you through the first, just the first two chapters to hear the beginning of this book of wisdom. Uh, maybe later in the year, if we get those chances in those school holiday times, I might pick it up and um, if I've done a bit more thinking about Ecclesiastes, we might work our way through that a bit more. I know also the young adults, as you heard this morning, are having a topical night coming up on work soon and talking to the organisers a couple of weeks ago also got me thinking about this book. But would you join me in a word of prayer as we uh, ask God to give us some wisdom uh, as we look at these chapters. Let's pray. Father, we live in this world that you've made. We all uh, have experienced different things in it and our observations sometimes are very dark. And we pray as we look at the words of the teacher as he's written them, as we attend to your spirit and ask for him to work in our lives that you would show us some light even in the world that we live and work in. Help us to be able to come away with some joy this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You're on your way home from work. And it's been an amazing day. Your boss singled you out for special mention at the staff meeting. And you think a promotion might actually be in the pipeline along with a fat paycheck that comes along with it. Uh, The girls in the accounts, or if you're a lady, reverse it, the guys in the accounts, told you it's so nice to work with you because you're always so polite and nice and funny and you suspect they might actually find you quite attractive. Which, can you blame them, really? (laughs) So you jump into your car or your train or whatever you use and... You turn up some music, you head on home. It's been a good day. Now, because you're a genius, you take a little-known shortcut, you get the right connection, and you make it home 15 minutes faster than you normally should. Through Sydney, that's that's not bad. You walk up to your place with a spring in your step. The conquering hero has returned, and with your ego riding high, your, your, your head is can't barely fit through that door. You know that you're loved and respected and providing for your family as you stride on home through that front door to receive... You know it, a well-deserved round of applause as you announce to your waiting family, I'm home. And you're greeted by the words, did you pick up the milk on the way home? You forgot again, didn't you? And just stand there, I need some help. Could you help feed Evie and give her a bath? She's been cranky all day. She's not eating her beans. Or if you've got older kids, Daddy, make him give it back. I'm so sorry, Dad, I scratched the car. It's my turn, Dad. Are you... You're so unfair. I can't find the dog anywhere. Can you drive me around the block so we can look for him? He pushed me. Welcome to reality. How in touch with reality are we? Or do you prefer, like so many of us, to just live in this fantasy land of our own imaginings where we distract ourselves with entertainment and imagine that life on here is ice cream all the time? Doses of reality are never really that pleasant, are they? But we need them, and that's exactly what we get in these first 
couple of chapters in Ecclesiastes. I don't know what you thought about uh, Michael's Bible reading. He read it very well, but it's very, uh, it's very dull. Not because you read it badly, but because the way that the mood that the writer was in is this terrible, strong dose of reality that he that he faces. Uh, verse one in the NIV says this: "Meaningless, meaningless," says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. And that word meaningless literally just means breath, a vapour, a mist. The translators have tried to be helpful in interpreting that for us in English, but I kind of like the raw literal version. Breath of breaths. Everything, says the teacher, is just breath. A breath of wind. The Hebrew word is hevel. It sounds like just two breaths. Hevel. Breathe in, breathe out. Hevel. Just like a breath, everything is here and then gone. Just like that. Everything is transient and passing and out of your control. So life in this world, says the teacher, his first two chapters is just striving and chasing after breath, the wind. You see that phrase, chasing after the wind, uh, uh, time and time again. You see it in chapter 1, verse 14. You see it down in verse 17. It's in chapter 2, 11, 17 and 26. Chasing after the wind. Or literally, you're trying to shepherd the wind. Which is impossible. It's harder than herding cats, if you know that phrase. Because you're trying to chase something, grab something that you can't control. The summary of the first two chapters is basically this. Life is hard and then you die. And the key question of this whole book, what this whole book is about, you see in chapter 1, verse 3. The writer wants to know this. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? What is the point of all the hard work that we fill our lives with? Since the start, since the ground was cursed, work has been hard and it's labour and it's toil, so why bother? You ever drag yourself out of bed on a Monday morning when the sky is still a bit dark and it's miserable and it's cold? It's certainly starting to get a bit colder nowadays. And you've got to sort of talk yourself into it to just get up and get started for the day. Or you're doing chores around the house and they're taking up your whole morning, your whole afternoon and... They're boring and they're repetitive. And you just got to ask yourself, why am I doing this? What is the point of it all? And if you know the feeling, then I suspect this book is for you. Uh, you might be stuck in a job that's going nowhere. There are those of us who are fed up or trapped by financial realities, your family responsibilities or the limited skills that you have. And when you're really frustrated, I don't think it's enough just to say, you know, God wants you to be the best paper pusher that you can possibly be. Although that's probably true. It's probably not even enough to say something like, you know, your, your calling as a sales rep for a hamster wheel company is just as significant as, you know, what our church's missionary, Christine Dillon, is doing in Taiwan. I mean, that's probably true too, but it doesn't really cut it on Monday morning, does it, when you still have to go to work, still have to do that job that's hard, or even worse, that job that... It seems pointless. It doesn't help in the world that I live in because the world that I live in is pretty messed up and disappointing and boring and dissatisfying and, and sometimes very depressing, which I think is why 
the opening in Ecclesiastes is refreshing for me. It's very honest and so real. Uh, I've talked to some of you about work and how you feel about it and I know some of you feel this is how working in our fallen world can feel. And I know Ecclesiastes doesn't say everything that it can about life, but it does provide some good wisdom for us who have to live here. Uh, The bottom line of chapter 1 is that work is hard and that nothing, nothing lasts. Look at verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but nothing much changes. Verse 5. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, it turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea and yet... The sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again. And to what end? Well, there's not much of one really. And the tone here is deliberately, I think, repetitive and depressing in the picture that it paints. Verse 8 says, All things are wearisome. And it all gets too much. It's all the same. Verse 9, What has been will be again. What what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything which one can say, look, here is something new? No, it was already here long ago. It was here before our time. And to make things worse, verse 11, when you're gone, you're forgotten. I don't know if you thought about that, but after a few generations, only the tiniest handful of people are remembered by anyone. Our names, our personalities, our achievements, all gone. So what's the point? And in particular, why should I put in hard yards at work and at home, day in, day out, every week? And like the writer here, I think I need an answer to that question. And uh, he does get there. But before we get to the answer, it might be worthwhile to stop and think about who it is that's asking the question. Who's writing this? Uh, Verse 1 tells us, we're told these words are words of the teacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. And the word translated teacher there in the NIV is another Hebrew word that literally means convener, a setter-upper of meetings and conferences. Who is it? It's probably Solomon. Uh, Verse 12 makes this clearer. I, the teacher, was king in Jerusalem, um, which narrows the field significantly, certainly. Uh, I suspect our host and dialogue partner in Ecclesiastes is none other than King Solomon himself. And if you want a quick once-over of Solomon's life, his birth mum was Bathsheba, the woman who King David committed adultery with in uh, 2 Samuel 11. And as David gets older and weaker, Solomon gets uh, made his successor. He becomes the heir to the throne. And so Solomon ruled in Jerusalem in the 10th century BC, about 3,000 years ago. And you read about his influence and impact over in 1 Kings. Let me read a little excerpt for you. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than everyone else, including Ethan, for goodness sake. 
whoever that was. He spoke uh, 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life and cedars of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. People from all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by their kings who had heard of his wisdom. So it seems one of the things Solomon did well was to organise international conferences where he calls people from all over the known world to talk about the big issues of life. He's like the first TED Talk organiser. I suspect the book of Ecclesiastes may be the fruit of some of these conferences and these ideas because it's basically a speech, what you read here, or about 12 chapters, a conference address or like a, a TED Talk. And it seems most of it is based on Solomon's own experience. Can you imagine the ancient city of Jerusalem filling up with all sorts of people from all around the world, all over the Mediterranean and North Africa, and the man who's invited everyone to this conference stands up to speak. His wisdom is legendary, and now he speaks simply and powerfully. And what does he say? Well, this is like the transcript that you get of his talk, and it's wisdom literature. Uh, wisdom literature might be a bit different to some of the other bits of the Bible that you've read. There's uh, two of the big categories in the Old Testament. There's law and there's wisdom. Uh, law tells God's people how to live in community, whereas wisdom tells you how to follow God when everything's really messy. Uh, law sets out ideals and, and boundaries, whereas wisdom tells you about reality. The law tells you how to set things up so things run really well, whereas wisdom tells you how to cope when things hit the fan and it's not really working. And Solomon seems to be the man who God used more than anyone to talk about wisdom, how to deal with life when it is unpredictable and when it is hard, which is awesome for all of us until you get to verse 13 when you read his initial conclusion. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen everything that's done under heaven, all of them, a breath. They're temporary. It's like chasing after the wind. Verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, and the more knowledge, the more grief. And it's not the most cheery way to start his talk, is it? He says, I've got more wisdom than anyone else, and life still seems really, really depressing. He couldn't fix anything. He couldn't think his way to happiness. And in fact, the more he thought about it, the worse things looked. And he saw that our world which you might have seen too, he saw that our world is broken. Which it is. And so what do you do with it? You put a bag over your head and just go around pretending nothing's happening, go back to sleep? No, Solomon's just getting started. He tells us at the start of his speech that he throws himself into the search for answers and he's going to share what he finds with us. So here we hit chapter 2. And the first basic fact that he finds is in chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, and it's this. Pleasure is good, but it doesn't last. You see, he throws himself into the pleasure of work, making as much money as he possibly can to enable himself to enjoy life. 
this 3,000-year-old approach to life sounds remarkably similar to what I bump into now. Work hard, play hard. But look what he finds. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good, but that also proved to be meaningless. See, this too proved to be temporary, a breath. Having a good laugh doesn't get you anywhere. Verse 2. Drink doesn't get you anywhere, verse 3. Literally, he says, I tried dragging myself along with wine and embracing a folly just to see what it was like. But he wasn't just a drunk. Verse 4 suggests he was also really passionately and committed to his work. Let's look at what he achieved. Look at verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself planted vineyards, I made gardens and parks and planted all sorts, all sorts of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water to groves, uh, water groves to flourishing trees. I, made, I bought male and female slaves and I had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. In terms of work, Solomon says, I lived the dream. I tried everything. I worked hard, I spent money trying to enjoy life. And was it good? Yes. Yes, it was. Did he find real pleasure? Pleasure in work? Yes. Pleasure in food and wine? Yes. Pleasure in women? Yes. His point isn't that there's no real pleasure in life to have. He's saying something else. Look at verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve... Everything was meaningless, temporary, a breath, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Did you notice a big yet of verse 11? He looks at everything he's done and is just chasing the wind. Nothing was gained. Is pleasure good? Of course it is. Everyone knows that. The trouble is, it doesn't last, does it? No matter how hard you try, the high doesn't last. And the grand scheme of things, nothing of significance changes. Solomon had his moment, and it passed. And that's what Solomon found. His list of achievements was huge. He was passionate about his work. He enjoyed it. He was good at it. But the problem was that everything was like breath. It came and it went. Work is good, pleasure is good, but it doesn't last. And if that's true, then that raises the real possibility that you and I have been pouring a whole lot of energy into things that maybe are the wrong things. It's worth asking, what really matters to us? What keeps us going? What counts and what have we been putting first? Is it the buzz we get from being good at our jobs? Or finding that thing that we can get employed for that satisfies us? Is it next quarter's results? Is it how many people after this says, Johnny, good talk over morning tea? Do we try to get our kicks from a job well done? If we do, then we're making a big mistake. I think that's what Ecclesiastes would tell us. 
or if it's the thought of our next holiday that keeps us going. Maybe you can't wait for the next concert or the next football game or the next episode of something that you like to watch or the next time you go out to a nice place to eat. It's very easy to live for pleasure in our city. And Solomon's quick to say that, we said it, pleasure is good. In the kindness of God, our lives are full of wonderful experiences. And yet Solomon tells us in no uncertain terms that though pleasure is good, it doesn't last. That's why, it's, in the end, it's really foolish to live for either work or pleasure. These things don't last. Then in chapter 2, verse 12, Solomon moves on from work and pleasure to think about wisdom. So sure, work and pleasure, they're, they're, they're more temporary, but come on, growing in knowledge, coming to understand more of our world and our universe, surely that's got to be a good thing. Greater education is going to be the thing that saves all of us, isn't it? And Solomon says, yeah, sure, verse 13, wisdom is better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. But then he adds, verse 14, I came to realize the same fate overtakes them both, the wise and the fool. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me too. This too is temporary, just a breath. For the wise, like the fool, will not long be remembered The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So is it better to be foolish or wise? Of course it's better to be wise. But wisdom isn't any more ultimate or lasting than work or pleasure is. It's a bit odd, isn't it, that in a book all about wisdom, there's a bit in it right at the beginning that suggests that wisdom doesn't come up with all the answers. Why does Solomon say that? Because Solomon knows full well that even wisdom can't protect us from all the problems of life in the real world. Does anyone know who John Swan was? Probably don't. He's the real inventor of the light bulb. (laughs) Not Thomas Edison, but John Swan didn't take out patents and Edison stole his invention. And so John Swan's been forgotten. That's how it is for everyone. Whether we're wise or foolish, we make very little impact on the planet. And we're only remembered by a very, very small number of people. Let's face it, how many of us have spent any time in the past thinking about our great-grandparents this week? Whether they were incredibly wise or incredibly foolish, they have been, for the most part, forgotten. And I'll do an experiment with you. I suspect it's going to divide this room into 70-30, maybe less. Raise your hand if you know who Ellis Simpson was. Or Van Helmrich. All right, so we're talking 90-10, not 70-30. We have a cake today. We had a cake here celebrating the fact we paid off this building. Well, Simpson and Van Helmrich, among many things, were great godly men who there were rooms in our church named after not so long ago. Great godly men who most of us, it seems, have no idea about. And it's not your fault. A few years ago, Jerry Truick was showing me a part of the kitchen wall that's been tiled over now in the kitchen. Jerry built that wall, (laughs) literally put brick on brick and and built the thing, I don't know how many years back, and all that's left of his work post the church renovation is this little corner that's been tiled over now, hidden away by new tiles so you can't even see it. And I know Jerry's totally glad for this new building and all, but you know what I'm getting at? Nothing lasts. We celebrated a new building being paid off, well, another 70 years, do you think this new building is going to be Who's going to remember? 
And even when those who remember pass, then what? And so we reach Solomon's recap of this whole section. Nothing lasts. Chapter 2, verse 17. So I hated my life because work, because of all the work that's done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had told for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me and who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish and yet that person will have control over all the fruit of my toil. And if you know Solomon's son, he was an idiot. Solomon literally lost the kingdom, split it into north and south. There was civil war after that. And he lost the plot. Solomon was a great man. Solomon's son ruined everything. This is reality ever since God pronounced his curse on the world and on our world since our expulsion from that garden. But so many of us walk around ignoring that. And when things go wrong in our cursed and fallen world, we seem to act like we're genuinely surprised. Like we assume there's no curse or fall and that life as it is is basically okay. We forget, I think, or we choose not to remember that we live in a world that's thoroughly corrupted, that our work is cursed, that life is hard, that from dust we are and to dust we will return. And things are not basically okay. When Jesus came, he didn't come telling us that things were basically okay with our world, did he? He said again and again, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The overhaul of this whole place is coming. Now is the time to turn around and get in line with what God is doing. Hold on, I'm in danger of straying back into John's Gospel here. Old Testament, Old Testament. Things are not basically okay, even here. And we shouldn't expect them to be. And yet, in God's mercy, even in the here and now, in the mess that we live in, amongst the temporariness of everything, there's still grace from God. It's like back in the fall when mankind were expelled from the garden and the ground is cursed and they are cursed and everything is fallen apart. Even in all that mess, God still does what? He graciously clothes them, doesn't he, with the skin of animals. He gives skin of animals to cover his naked fallen creatures to give them a bit of grace. And here in Ecclesiastes, even after two chapters of futility and how everything is just breath, at the end of chapter 2, there's this tantalizing little hint of hope that life isn't just a rat race, but is actually a gift from God. Look at verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? The person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness, but to the sinner he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. All of life, even in the mess, is, do you see it there? Verse 24. A gift from the hand of God. Work and pleasure and wisdom are all gifts that God's given to us. Yes, life here is a mess. But it's still a wonderful gift from a gracious God. And the fact that we are creatures created and sustained by a creator, that's not a perspective I hold often enough. Because if I knew that I was a creature, I think I'd be more okay with my limitations. 
and my transience and the boundaries that God's given me because I'm not the creator, I'm the creature. And that perspective finally lets you be thankful and actually enjoy what God has given. You're not the master of the domain, you're you're not clutching on to work and pleasure and trying to do the impossible thing of chasing after breath, chasing wind as if the ultimate goal is that you catch it. The truly wise person sees that he is a creature, she is a creature held in God's hand. That God is God, that you are not. And so you can finally be thankful for what God has given in the season God's given it. Here in the fear and the awareness of God is wisdom and knowledge and happiness and a cure for our discontent. Our time this morning is up, but I hope even in these first couple of chapters you've experienced something of the reality check that Ecclesiastes gives us, that of creatureliness. And my prayer is that we can face this week coming up with a perspective that can admit that, yeah, things won't last. Work and pleasure, even wisdom is going to come and go. But let's not be so foolish as to pour all our energy and hope into chasing and collecting these things. But instead, let's try to remember that even in this mess, God is the giver of many good gifts. That from his hand, we can find enjoyment and so be thankful for what is given. Amen.